0: Visit SuccessfulNonprofits.com forward slash newsletter to sign up today. And now, friend, let me take you to the episode you've downloaded. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast, where each episode brings you interviews and ideas from nonprofit leaders. Welcome to the Successful Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dolph Goldenberg. Today we are talking about a subject that might make your heart go pitter-pat with excitement or maybe make you faint dead away, overcome by grandeur. We are talking growth, people, big growth, as in growing your organization from zero to over $3 million in under five years. Nonprofits often strategize about growth and how to make that potential a reality. But our guest, Moria Kuvarez, is a leader who pulled off incredible growth in a remarkably short period of time. Moria is CEO at Scripted, a nonprofit that teaches students in under resourced schools how to code. Students don't just learn coding at Scripted, they work in paid summer internships with role models in the field. The cost to the students for this opportunity, you may ask? Nothing. The opportunity is free for all students. Scripted was founded in April of 2012 with 27 participating students. As of the 2016 17 school year, that number rocketed to 870 students. The program is now bicoastal with a presence in 35 New York City high schools and three schools in the Bay Area. ScriptEd's corporate sponsors include some names that you're probably going to be familiar with. Google, eBay, GitHub, and Accenture, just to name a few. Moria and ScriptEd have been the recipients of numerous awards and recognition. Moria was named a New York Business Journal's Woman of Influence, and Ignite Good by Huffington Post, and Millennial Impact Fellow. And let me also say... One of seven millennials too busy changing the world to take selfies. And I think that's probably the best HuffPo award ever. Clearly, Moria has a few things to teach us. Get ready to take notes, friends, as we are lucky to have such an accomplished guest with us today. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor
1: we'll light
0: our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. Hey, welcome to
1: the podcast, Moria. Hi, thank you so much for having me today.
0: So as you think back to April 2012, when you were launching ScriptEd, what were your expectations for the organization's trajectory?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think when we first started the organization, I think we put in place like a plan to be with 5,000 students by a certain year. Maybe we said even, actually, no, I take that back. We said we'd be with 1,200 students by this year that we're in now, and we're actually with 1,200 students this year, Um and um, the way that we got there was a lot different than what we what was initially planned. I have to admit, back then, it, it felt a little bit like we were just making things up <laughs> because we had no idea if the idea was viable. We had no idea um, if if it would really take off. But I think we wanted at that point to just see, you know, in April 2012, we, we didn't actually launch the first program until September 2012. So the idea kind of happened in April, but we launched programs in September. And I think we really needed to run that first program to start understanding how big it could actually be. And once we kind of got it off the ground was when we really started to realize that it had a ton of potential for growth.
0: So how did you create that initial plan?
1: So I have a co-founder. Her name is Liz. Um, she's on our board now. She doesn't work at the organization full-time, but she and I worked on that first plan together. And, I mean, really the first plan was just more around what – so she and I are both former teachers, and that first plan was really around what the curriculum would be and how we would, like, actually implement the program. So what ScriptEd does is – and I think it's pretty unique is um, – We bring professionals from the tech industry into under-resourced high schools to teach a foundational curriculum in computer science and web development. And so we had to both figure out what we would be teaching that first year, but also how we would get volunteers into the classroom and how we would train them to teach Because we had no money whatsoever, and we just kind of had this idea that we should be teaching students how to code, everything we did in that plan was like on a shoestring budget. (laughs) And I think that is what has helped us grow such a high-impact program at a relatively low cost, because when we first created the program, we were like, well, we can't pay for space we can't pay teachers, we we can't pay for computers. So we kind of developed this program model where we were, you know, partnering with schools and using school space. And we were using volunteers to teach the curriculum. And so everything was very, very low cost from the outset. And I think um, that really allowed us to, you know, they, there's like some sayings that you if you innovate and you create with like a lack of resources, you end up kind of being constrained in such a way that allows you to be a lot more creative with how you're getting resources together. So we were really resource constrained and we made all of our decisions based on that. And it was really also, I would say at the beginning, um, more of a passion project than something that we thought was going to turn into this big nonprofit. (laughs) Um, It was more of like, we were passionate about working with students. We were passionate about technology and we wanted to just do something um, to kind of fix a problem that we saw. We were both, I'm, I'm talking a lot, so feel free to stop me, but we both saw a, a real lack of education in the technology space for for both of us. We, again, we were both teachers, and we both had students who were obsessed with technology but never expressing an interest in going into the field, and we really just wanted to give our students more of an opportunity to access that um, that career path.
0: So it sounds like your initial plan was kind of based on three P's. So obviously passion, partnerships, and programs. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so as you, as you think about that initial plan, how did money fit into that? So like, did you have a sense of, okay, here's the amount of money we're going to need and here's how we're going to raise it? How did that work for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, at the beginning, and it's really funny now that I think back on it and how I was so naive about money at that point. Like, I was like under the assumption that we just didn't need any money. (laughs) You know, I was doing it in addition to my full-time jobs. My co-founder was in a grad school program getting her PhD at that point. And we were like, well, we don't have to spend anything because we can recruit volunteers we can work in schools and we can get the technology from schools and we can just volunteer our time. we didn't really start making a budget until about the end of the first year when we realized like that there was so much growth potential and that we just like couldn't, we needed to spend so much more time on it to make it a real thing and therefore we needed to be employed. <laughs> um, and so I think um that initial budget, there was just, there wasn't one. It was just kind of based on this idea that we were going to go forward with just like volunteer labor. And it wasn't until about a year afterwards that we just realized it just wasn't very sustainable. And that's when we started creating a budget of like, you know, the first year when the first year I went full time, it was 2013. And it was like, okay, I need to pay for my salary And I need to probably hire one more person to help me like manage the volunteers. And then, um, you know, maybe we both need computers and that was kind of it. (laughs) Um, and that's kind of how, um, that first budget came to be. I will say it's really funny looking back at the budgets we had to, for like our tax exempt application, we had to do like three, like three years of a projected budget for the IRS. And it was just like, um, we, we have like now, we're now much further beyond those three years of predictions uh, that we had initially mapped out. But yeah, that, that was kind of the first budgeting process that we did. Our program is now much more robust. It has many more levels of programming now. So there are a lot more expenses than we had at the beginning. I mean, our long-term aim is that our students get into careers in tech, and that means supporting them for several years. Um, so now we have expenses related to all the different program uh, areas um, that uh, we didn't have at the beginning, just because, you know, in the first cohort of students, it was just one year. But then they went on and, you know, we had advanced courses in the second year and then we added an alumni program and we have an internship program. And so the expenses grew um, just because we really believe in deep impact. Um, but at the beginning, it was very, very shoestring.
0: So it sounds like you know, after your first year, you said, okay, we need a budget. We need to figure out how to get money for staff. How did you make that case for funding when you approached foundations and corporations?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. So there are a few key things at the beginning that really helped us out with getting funding. First was just, I hustled a lot. I mean, I just, I was 27 years old when it started and I was an unproven entrepreneur, like I'd never run anything before. And so I just basically took any meeting I could get with anyone and just kept telling people like, oh, this is a really low cost model. There are all these jobs available in tech. We're doing this thing to teach students how to code and we can get them internship ready. And so it was just really pounding the pavement, to be quite honest. And then I think the other things that helped, um, so very early on, I met Josh Silverman, who is our board chair now, but at the time he was a president at American Express. Um, Now he's the CEO of Etsy, and I told him about the work we were doing, again, I didn't have a full-time job, was doing it uh, on a volunteer basis, and kind of met him through, again, like just putting my name out there as much as I could. I had applied for all these different awards for the the program. Um, And he was really taken by the idea. And, um, you know, he made an investment and got American Express to also contribute, match him. And that's the funding that, like, provided me with, you know, something like six months of runway to do it full time. Um, And I think that having someone like him really early on, um, he was, again, like what he had, what I didn't, he was a proven entrepreneur, he was the uh, co-founder of Evite. And so by having his backing, it was it was kind of like a signal to other people to say, oh, this person has been vetted by this person who's been a successful entrepreneur. And I found that a lot more doors opened for the organization after that. I'll also say there are a few key things that really helped us get into some of the funding opportunities that, again, opened a lot of doors from the beginning. So I met with the Robin Hood Foundation before I'd even gone full time, and we had a pretty strong theory of change. We had really thought through how we were going to measure our effectiveness so we had, we done a lot of deep thinking of like how our program model was really going to change economic outcomes for our students. And I think having done that deep thought from the outset and having like a really strong theory uh, was important and then having a low cost model to do it. So we're saying we're going to achieve these really great long-term things and we're going to do it like in a high impact way, but at, you know, not an expensive price. And I think that was really compelling to foundation partners at the beginning.
0: Obviously, you got some buy-in from, you know, a president at American Express. But how did your board change from year one to year two to year three?
1: It changed a lot. So the first year was just me, my co-founder, and one of our friends. (laughs) And that was it. And we had, you know, we met in my apartment once Josh joined the board, it became a lot more formalized. We we realized we couldn't just like meet in my apartment. <laughs> we started
0: Was Josh the very next person to join the board or
1: it was I think so. It was Josh and then um so my co-founder and I were both to Teach for America and so we were put in touch with somebody named Donny L. Giles, who was one of the co-founders of Donors Choose. And so we asked him to join the board as well. So I think they were the first two to join after that initial board then we I was again put in touch with another woman her name's Sarah Min through a friend of a friend who joined our board and I think it was it was the six of us the three original members and then Josh Sarah and Danielle in that second year and at that point that's when we started meeting at American Express which is super fancy office space um, a lot different than my apartment and so there was like you know There was just like a lot more rigor around the board meetings. I felt like I was being held to a really, really high standard. And so was always incredibly prepared and did a lot more work to make sure that those board meetings ran well. And then after that, I think the year three, we added on a few more board members again just through networking. Um... And we continued to do them at American Express. So it was it went from kind of like, and I would say the board is still really good at strategic advice. I would say um, at the beginning, though, it was just like, you know, that first year it was just like, okay, we just have to get a whole bunch of work done. And then as the years have gone on, they've become much more strategic and uh, focused on fundraising.
0: Well, Mario, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the role of data in growing ScriptEd. Maybe you're envisioning your nonprofit with quadruple-digit growth after listening to Maria, or maybe you're wondering how in the world you will manage adding three more clients to your overworked staff's caseload. Well, as you may have heard, regardless of where you are, it all starts with a plan. So if you're ready to begin robust strategic planning process, let's have a conversation. You can reach out to me at goldenberggroup.com. Hey, Moria, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. So I think one of the things that really sets scripted apart whether it is working on building and growing programs, raising money, reporting to its board, is the way in which it collects, tracks, and reports data. Can you say a little bit about this?
1: Yeah. So I think I mentioned earlier that we developed a theory of change pretty early on. And in that theory of change, it's kind of like the way that we think about it now is if you were to imagine a a pyramid, at the very bottom level we say it's we're trying to achieve exposure and that is really getting students the skills they need to just be fluent in coding and so for that tier uh, we have a metric that 80% of our students will achieve an 80% mastery on our end of year assessment From there, uh, if you imagine the next tier up on that pyramid, we want half of the students that have enrolled in our foundations class to enroll in our advanced classes, which are classes that take place at our company partners' offices, places like Google and Etsy and BarkBox. So that's the the next metric of success is like, okay, have we leveled at least half of our students up to uh, this advanced class? Once they reach our advanced class level, that is when we start tracking them towards our long-term outcomes of careers in tech. So the advanced course students have to do a summer experience that is a work-based summer experience. So either an internship or an internship-like experience where they're getting paid to code over the summer. That's kind of the metric there. Are students getting that summer experience? And also, are they passing the advanced class proficiency exam at the end of the year? And then from there, after they exit our program, they become alums of the program. And it is, we hope that at least half of the students that have gone through the advanced class will then enter into a career in technology. So we measure things like high school graduation. If they are enrolling in college, are they choosing to major in a tech related field? Um, if they are not, are they going into a tech related career? And where are they going to like a coding boot camp? And then finally, uh, the final metric is six years out from high school graduations. Are they in a tech career? And right now we have pretty compelling stats. So it's something like less than 1% of the demographic that we serve will traditionally go on to a career in tech or majoring in a CS related field in college. Um, We're at 73% of students going on to careers in tech. So if you think about that, um, the, the average um, uh, student we serve comes from a family of four that's making around $35,000 a year. The average software engineer makes ninety dollars to $100,000 a year. So we're leveling up um, students into the, to the middle class. Um, and so we track all of those different kind of touch points along the pipeline into the career. And we're able to, so we do like You know, the assessments, we do alumni surveys, we do we pull from the national student, what is it called the clearinghouse data for colleges, and then we have all that data that we then report back to funders, but also helps us tell our story of who we are as an organization and the impact that we're making. Um, I think it's also really powerful that we're able to translate our impact into dollars. That has really resonated with, you know, we're a tech nonprofit with the VC community in Silicon Valley. That's like really looking for like, OK, what are the inputs and what are the outputs and like what is the, the ROI and all of that stuff. So to be able to speak in that kind of language is really helpful, not only for our students, but also for fundraising, because we can really put a lot of um, metrics behind what we do.
0: So year two. You did not have a lot of staff. How did you go about collecting such an intense level of data? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we were still small at year two. So I think in year two, we had maybe 100 students and very few of those students had even left high school yet. So we were really only collecting data around what was happening in our classrooms. And as former teachers, especially as former Teach for America core members, where you learn that data is so important to the practice of teaching. Not the only thing that's important for teaching, but it can help guide uh, your lessons. Um, We were very used to the idea of doing assessments and collecting data on students and analyzing where we missed or where students missed a lesson or missed a concept. So we, and that's something we've taught to our volunteers as well. You know, when they, uh, when we implement the program, it's like part of the culture of our program is that students will take these like, you know, checks for understanding and like coding challenges and things like that. So we're getting lots of data back all along the way. We've now gotten to a point where we're like using Salesforce and everything, but we didn't do that in year two.
0: Now that you're a lot larger and you're serving a lot more students, do you have a data department, uh, just one data staff person, like who manages all that data for you now?
1: I mean, the bulk of our staff members are program managers. So they are typically former teachers who coach volunteers in lesson delivery and act as liaisons with schools and they have a portfolio of five to six schools or corporate partners for the advanced classes and so until I mean they will continue to do this but they do a lot of the data collection so we use like for our assessments we use a tool called HackerRank. so students are like going online and taking coding challenges and that data is Like we automatically get it. We don't have to, there's not much to do other than collect it because we're getting reports back. Um, But then we also do attendance and that's all online. So we've done a lot of automation of, of collecting that data, but the program managers are ultimately responsible for like validating it and like making sure that it's correct and making sure it's in Salesforce. Um, So everybody on the team kind of contributes to it.
0: And so do you automate that online through Salesforce or how do you automate it?
1: Now I'm getting a little bit out of my depth because I haven't I haven't built the Salesforce system myself It's some like a group of people on my team have, but I believe the attendance data is automatically goes into Salesforce. I don't think our HackerRank data does, but we have like a way to upload it very easily. So and then like the other thing that we do, this is like a little bit different than data, but we recruit volunteers and we have to like make sure that they're qualified, and all of the volunteer information automatically goes into Salesforce for us.
0: So it sounds like you had a team that custom coded Salesforce for you, like you did not just take it off the box, like the nonprofit starter pack or something like that.
1: We did. We have a Salesforce consultant. So we got a grant from one of our foundation partners originally to help us customize Salesforce. And now we have like a, a part-time consultant. And then the, the person that I mentioned that's doing Salesforce part-time for her role next year has also been to a bunch of trainings. We have a few people on staff that are pretty savvy with Salesforce. We're like a pretty, we're pretty young staff, with a lot of millennials. Um, And so there's just a lot of people that have, and and we teach coding. So it's kind of like, uh, there's a lot of people with uh, tech expertise on staff, which has been helpful. Mm -hmm.
0: So obviously you've got great outcomes. uh, And if you had these great outcomes, but did not have the data to demonstrate it, do you think you would have grown at the same rate that you have?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Probably not. I mean, I'm thinking of we're primarily funded at this point by foundations and foundations demand data. So I I can't imagine how we would have ever gotten grants had we not had that data to back up the stories we were telling. And when we haven't gotten money from foundations, again, like the biggest individual donors we've had have been from like the tech VC community who are also very interested in data. So I'm going to say no, I don't think so.
0: And, and it's funny, because that's kind of my sense, too. I just sort of feel like one of the reasons that you are so fundable is because you can prove the difference you make, and you can show the economic impact you have on people's lives. And people like to see that. (laughs) Right, exactly. Yeah, especially funders. It's really important for them. So, Mario, what's next for ScriptEd?
1: We're definitely in this kind of phase. I mean, I guess we've always been in a phase of rapid change. But I think at this point, we spent the first five years really, really focused on our program. I did not have... A full time development person until five years in. I did it all kind of on my own with some assistance from uh, the person who's now our executive director in the Bay Area. Um, and so, in the last year or so, we've been building out a leadership team. So now we have like a finance and operations person, we have a, d- a very early stage development department that we're hoping to grow we have a communications person, um, we have a corporate partnerships director. And so we're kind of in this phase of of in the next year or two of really building that infrastructure of uh, making sure we have a really solid foundation. We want to get a lot better at telling our story. Again, because we've been so focused on the program, we've not done things like really figure out like how to take advantage of social media. And, you know, sometimes we don't send out newsletters as regularly as we should. Um, and so we're trying to get on top of that. We have to think about our HR systems, you know, it's, we'll have, I think we're predicted to have 40 people on staff as of the end of next fiscal year. And so we just, there's just a whole other range of things to think about. Um, so we're, we're really working on that infrastructure, um, our goal five years out from that now is to be with 5,000 students. We want to serve 5,000 students a year. And so.
0: So I got to uh, interrupt you. So you're going to grow by 400% over the next five years.
1: Yeah. So we're with 1,200 this year. And so the intention is to get to 5,000. And we've been doing a lot of research on, you know, How can we grow in the cities we're already in? What other cities should we be going to? How do we do this in a way that's really smart? Um, So I think right now the intention is, at least for next school year, the 2019-2020 school year, we're not growing to another city, but we are strongly exploring a city. Uh, It's Chicago. So we're going to be looking at Chicago as our next place. And then in order to really reach that 5,000, we're probably going to need to start thinking about some other cities. There's also a lot of, I mean, New York City, uh, one of my favorite stats is that I think it's like one out of every 310 or 320, I don't know how many people are in America, but one out of 310 or 320 people in the United States is a New York City public school student. So we have a really big opportunity to continue expanding here. And so I think, you know, we have a lot of work to do here and potentially in some other places. And so um, once we kind of get a little bit more of a solid ground on, you know, again, our HR functions, our finance, our operations, our fundraising, our communications, uh, we really want to take, you know, the work that we've done and and expand it to as many students as we can.
0: So I just have to reflect that I love the fact that you are able to clearly say, here's what we're going to do over the next year. And we're doing it because here's our five year goal. And here's where we're headed. And and specifically, here's how we're going to get there. And gosh, I, I think if there's one takeaway from this episode, it's that organizations that are able to do that are better able to grow and better get able to get the funding necessary to grow.
1: Yeah, and I think it's, it's when you put out a big goal, people want to help you get there that's what I've discovered like if you put out a big goal and you say this is the path we're going to take to get there this is how much impact we can make then it's like it becomes really easy for people to want to get on board with that you know when you just ask for money but you don't have like a clear path or a clear goal it becomes a lot harder to get people excited about what you're doing Um, but we have you know we have a, a, a program model that we really believe in and that we think should be with as many students as possible, and you know the world is changing super rapidly. The future of work is like a big conversation people are having now, and educating our young people to be ready for the workforce is just—it's a really important thing to do. And so, you know, I think people are excited about helping us get there.
0: Well, Maria, I've I've got to switch gears real quick so that I can fit in the off the map question, and. What listeners may not fully know is that while this is an audio podcast, we can see each other. And so it's kind of, you know, we do it on Skype and it's kind of like the Jetson. So, you know, I can see you on a screen and you can see me on a screen. And every time you lift your arm, I keep seeing a Garmin on your wrist. And for (laughs) (laughs) for listeners that don't know, a Garmin is a really, really cool watch that is much, much better than a Fitbit, way more accurate than a Fitbit. It can track you when you swim, when you run when you bike. So a lot of triathletes have them. Uh, So I've got to ask you, what's your next race?
1: Oh, I'm going to do the New York City Triathlon on July 1st is my next one. I've done two half Ironmans this year so far.
0: And so what's the distance of the New York City Tri?
1: It's an Olympic tri. So that's a mile swim, 25 mile bike, 6.2 mile run.
0: What boroughs, is it only in one borough or what boroughs, plural, is it, does it go through?
1: Yeah, we swim in the Hudson River. Ew, and then we, I just have to say, <laughs> that's
0: the one reason I would never do that dry. Okay, sorry, go ahead.
1: <laughs> um, and then we bike up the West Side Highway into the Bronx and then back down. Um, and then we run from the West Side into Central Park and do a loop, or not a full loop, but six miles worth of, of running to kind of the middle of Central Park.
0: Oh my gosh, that sounds like an awesome, tr- other, other than having to swim in the Hudson, that sounds like an awesome, awesome try to do.
1: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And we use it as um, a fundraising event for ScriptEd too. So the New York City Tri is like the local, my local race. I've been doing tries forever, um, but yeah.
0: It's interesting you say that because I've actually suggested that to other organizations where, for example, if an organization says, oh, we really want to put on a 5K, I'm always like, hold on, putting on a 5K is expensive and a lot of work. Why don't you use someone else's 5K? So it sounds like that's what ScriptEd does with the try. Yes, that's
1: what we do.
0: So how many people are are fundraising on behalf of ScriptEd in this try this year? We
1: actually, this is... This is not, we don't have as many people as we've had in the past. Um, The New York City Triathlon has actually had trouble selling out their spots this year. Um, Usually they set like it's a lottery and they sell out immediately. And this year um, they still have spots for sale. And therefore people who would normally get a charity entry are now just buying on the website. So we have three people um, this year. So it's not really that big. But we've had, I think, up to 10 in the past. And it's for me, it's more of just like, it's my passion. And so I just thought, why not marry my two passions and make this a charity event. Um, So yeah, we'll see if we'll continue. I don't know what the future of the New York City Try is, just because, um, you know, if we can't sell the spots, then it's it's harder for us. Yeah.
0: Well, Maria, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope your try on July 1st is an amazing experience and that you've hit your own new personal record. Thank you. So I'm also just completely honored that you have taken the time to be with us today. It has been an enlightening experience and I want to let listeners know how they can find out more about ScriptEd. Information about ScriptEd's mission, growth, accolades, and opportunities can be found at scripted.org. Now, while you're there, take some time to look at the annual reports, which are an inspiration for any nonprofit that really wants to offer good data-driven annual reports for their donors, for their funders, and for their community. Hey, Maria, thank you so much again.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: If, while I was sharing ScriptEd's URL, you were busy cursing your database and wishing you had a student intern to code for you, all is not lost. You will find the information from today's podcast on our website, SuccessfulNonprofits.com. Thank you for joining Maria and I today. If this was your first listen, welcome, and do come back. If you've been here before, thanks for returning. Either way, though, do me a solid and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Libsyn, or your favorite podcast listening app. That's our show for this week. I hope you've gained some insight to help your nonprofit thrive in a competitive environment. I am not an accountant or attorney, and neither I nor the Goldberg Group provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. This material has been provided for informational purposes only, is not intended to provide, and should not be relied on for tax, legal, or accounting advice. Always consult a qualified, licensed professional about such matters.